1: I'm Connor Reid, with words to that effect. This is the story of three journeys by three people in three very different times. The first journey begins in Britain in the early 19th century, the second in the US in Wisconsin in the 1970s, and the third in Dublin at the beginning of this century. But each of these journeys ends in the same area in the west of Ireland. And each journey is founded on a search for a more perfect world. For utopia. In 1823, the renowned Welsh social reformer, philanthropist and utopian thinker Robert Owen visited Dublin. Owen had spent the previous decades advocating for and experimenting with ways to improve the lives and conditions of workers in Britain. He promoted the idea of self-sufficient socialist communities, cooperatives in which people would live and work together. In 1824, he would travel to the US to put his ideas into practice, most famously establishing an experimental new community at New Harmony in Indiana. But just before this, he came to Dublin, and there in the Rotunda in the city center, he gave a series of public talks on socialism, working conditions, and cooperative living. These ideas were discussed and debated across the country by landowners and labourers alike. And not long afterwards, a landowner named John Scott Vandeleur decided to establish his own cooperative based on Owenite principles. Now, he didn't do this simply out of a benevolent love of socialism. This was a time of huge social unrest and inequality and frequent clashes between labourers and landowners. So a system where labourers were more content and felt they had a degree of ownership of the land was clearly of benefit to everyone, and the members of Vandeleur's newly established cooperative would still pay generous rent to their landlords. And so, in 1831, on Vandeleur's land in Rallahine, County Clare, not far from Limerick City, a cooperative of just over 50 people was established. Thomas Craig, from Manchester, a man who'd studied the workings of Owens Cooperatives, was brought over to oversee the project. And after some initial difficulties, Craig didn't speak any Irish for one, the Rallahine Agricultural and Manufacturing Cooperative Association was formed. By modern standards, the cooperative was not exactly a paradise. Working hours were long, up to 12 hours labouring a day, on top of the work involved in running the community itself. Wages were not particularly high, and home life would have taken some getting used to for most members. Unmarried men and women slept in separate dormitories, with only married couples living together in small cottages. Children were educated and provided for communally until the age of 17, and a percentage of every member's wage was taken to pay for education, clothing, food, and all the other provisions for the children. It was an abstemious cooperative. No alcohol, no tobacco, no snuff were allowed in the community, and gambling was forbidden. Still, at this time, these conditions were actually pretty good for your average labourer. Rallohind had a lot of positive aspects, and the members were by all accounts very happy with their lot. Food was plentiful, there was no anxiety about providing for children, there was a common fund to support members who fell ill or got injured. Needless to say, sick pay was not exactly common in the 1830s. And above all, there was a sense of ownership of production and collective decision making which just didn't exist anywhere else at this time. The cooperative attracted new members almost immediately, and soon it grew from 50 to nearly 80. The first reaping machine in Ireland was introduced here, and importantly, it was welcomed by the members. This was a time when new agricultural machinery was viewed with suspicion, if not outright hostility, by farm workers who saw their labour under threat. You may remember this whole issue in a Hungarian context led to the genesis of the Scarlet Pimpernel, which was the subject of episode 15. The Ralahine Cooperative was, it seemed, a great place to live if you were a farm labourer in 1830s Ireland. So, our first journey, which began with the utopian ideas of Robert Owen, ends in a cooperative in Ralahine, County Clare. Wisconsin, United States, the 1970s.
0: I'm from the States. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, taught in Wisconsin did my PhD in Wisconsin, taught there for many years and then taught in Washington,
1: D.C. This is Professor Tom Moylan, Professor Emeritus in the School of Language, Literature, Culture and Communications at the University of Limerick. I gave him a call to talk about utopias and his own journey. In Wisconsin, I taught
0: at a community college and I organised with others a centre for ecological studies in the 1970s. It was one of the first ones. Uh, And then in D.C., at George Mason, I organized a center for the study of the Americas. Utopia and science fiction were always at the core of my own work. So, lo and behold, I I saw an ad for a professorship in Limerick, and this is where my parents are from, and uh, I applied, got the job, and was appointed a a full professor in 2002. So, my first uh, act was to say, well, it's time for a utopian research center. A colleague pointed out to me that in an estate nearby here, uh, a guy named John Vandelier had an estate in the 1820s. He was a landlord, and and he heard a lecture by Robert Owen about cooperatives. And so he he asked Owen's people to come in, and he turned his estate into a cooperative, and he called it Rallahine. And it thrived until poor John
1: indulged in his other passion, which was gambling. (laughs) He lost the farm. Sadly, yes, that is indeed the end of the story of the Rallaghan Cooperative. It lasted only two years in the end. And ironically, the man who owned a cooperative on which gambling was banned lost his fortune and the estate to his gambling addiction. Rallaghan was seized and the members were not recognised under British law as having any right to any of the stock or property or to continue its tenancy. So the new owner disbanded the association, and the Rallaghan experiment ended. There were other smaller, similar communities established around this time in Ireland, but Rallaghan is the best known example because of its size and its success in a remarkably short amount of time. Many people then and subsequently have wondered what it could have become if it had been allowed to flourish over a much longer period. It was an experiment in Utopia, and like all real-life Utopian experiments, it was messy and complicated and not at all perfect. But in its own small way, it modelled a different path and alternative future.
0: We are named after one of the most successful cooperatives, but also one that kind of captures the half-life of Utopia. In its own
1: history. Which is kind of perfect when you want to talk about utopias. They've changed, they adapt, they're never fully realised. As we'll see, that's the whole point, you're not supposed to reach utopia. There's a sort of tension between the everyday use and the more nuanced meaning of the word utopia. It can be a useful shorthand for a paradise, a perfect world, but... In this way, striving to achieve utopia can seem a bit fanciful or futile.
0: I mean, the, the kind of anti-utopian sensibility that's out there, and that's usually echoed by people who really want to keep things the way they are, uh, whether they're the church uh, calling utopia heretical or established systems calling it dangerous uh, or wasteful, idle dreaming. You know, it's, it's attacked from a lot of different positions, but You know, it's it's not just a matter of wishing for a better world. We all do that when we think about what we do if we win the lottery. Uh, But utopia knocks it up to a social level. And you know what what's wrong with this world, and how can we how and why can we make it better? Uh, David Harvey's one of my favorite urban geographers, and he says, you know, that's the challenge for utopia. You can have the
1: vision, but then you got to go and build it. Which brings us to our third journey. Building the reality. Clock Jordan at the moment, yeah, are you? Sitting in my study, yeah? Great, great. I'm talking to Professor Patter Kirby, Emeritus Professor of International Politics and Public Policy. Like Professor Moylan, he's also based in the University of Limerick. But the reason I'm calling him today is to discuss his journey from a typical neighbourhood in suburban Dublin, coincidentally, it's where I live and I'm actually calling him from, to a contemporary cooperative, the Clock Jordan Eco Village. It's about 40 minutes outside Limerick, and not too far from Malahein either.
2: Uh, it, it was a relatively sort of straightforward uh, journey for us, because when the, when the group that established this project were having meetings in Dublin, out of which this project emerged, my wife was attending some of those meetings, and she'd come back, and she was full of enthusiasm for this project. I mean, I had no interest whatsoever. It wasn't on my agenda in the late 1990s. Uh, I think what helped me personally to open me up to this set of, of complex issues was a year that we spent in Chile, 2001, 2002, where we took our two daughters. I had a sabbatical leave. And we have good friends there. Every Monday night, we used to go over to them and watch videos about really the new cosmology, Thomas Berry Brian Swim. Those names may not mean very much to you, but they are leading thinkers in the United States. So that's the background to the fact that when I uh, was, when I applied for a chair, a chair became vacant in UL, I applied, and myself and my wife were talking about, well, if I were to get this, where might we live? Uh, Then the idea of of moving to the eco-village, which had by then bought land in Clark Jordan, came up as the obvious place, and she was very keen. And at that stage, I was also interested to find out more. So, you know, from there it was an easy journey. I got the job and, and we bought a, a site in Clock Jordan and we ended up being one of the first three houses that was built in 2009. So I was among the first residents of the eco-village.
1: For Professor Kirby, Clockjordan Jordan is very much a project in the spirit of Rallaghan and of utopianism.
2: I do think we're a very appropriate uh, project, you know, through which to, to examine the, the meaning of, of, of utopianism. I certainly would would feel we're utopian in that sense. Uh, it, it has it, ha- it has been referred to in in the media and it has caused some annoyance among members here. So that that's an interesting piece of information to share with you. There was, a, an I think it was an Irish Independent or a Sunday Independent article, where I had mentioned something about utopianism. And the headline writer picked this out. And there was quite a bit of annoyance among members. Just to nurture to that, that we i I'm very happy to talk about it as a utopian project, but bear in mind that, that other people here wouldn't share that view at all at all.
1: And I think it's perfectly reasonable on the part of those members who don't see the village as utopian. You know, if you call Clock Jordan a utopia, people may worry that it gives this superior sense that it's a perfect community, which is understandably not the impression I would imagine members want to give. But while this community is obviously not perfect, it is modelling and striving towards something that's rarely found in contemporary Ireland. Just as Rallahein attempted on a small scale to address the deep social issues surrounding land ownership, capitalism and labour in the 19th century, Clock Jordan is trying in its own small way to model a future which addresses the great issue of our time, climate change and the future of the planet. But let's go back a bit. Where do these conflicting ideas about utopianism originate? Why was the 19th century in particular a time of grand utopian thinking for Robert Owen and so many others like him? And perhaps most importantly today, in an age of widespread dystopias, both real and imaginary, why do we need utopian thinking more than ever? Well, in literary terms, the story of utopia is very easy to date. It begins with one book, Utopia, by Thomas More. A book so influential it gave its name to an entire literary genre and mode of thought. Moore was an English statesman, philosopher and counsellor to King Henry VIII, although he didn't support Henry's separation from the Catholic Church, so no surprises how he died. Nearly 20 years before his beheading, however, he wrote Utopia in 1516. It's so commonly translated today that it's easy to forget that it was actually written in Latin, not English. And the title is a wordplay from Greek. Utopia is a not place, but it also plays on the Greek word for good, so it's a a good place, a better place, but a place that doesn't exist. Which is the whole idea of the Utopia. It's a glimpse of something better, a place we can never reach, but which we should nevertheless work towards. It's a fantasy, but it's also openly political, as it certainly was in the case of Moore.
0: Like a sociologist, he's an advisor to society. He was the advisor to Henry VIII, and he had a lot of problems with what was going on in the country at the time, or yet to be a country, and so he couldn't attack this and propose alternatives directly because in those days you'd lose your head. So he did it by way of fantasy. What if there was another world? Um, so Moore started it, and, and boy, it went on You know, ever since, and it's thriving today. Um, it's it's an overtly political aesthetic you know it 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 is talking about society and about change and sometimes it can lead to very clunky novels um you know just describing in too much detail with not enough verve or style uh but sometimes it can be and often very beautiful
1: other writers followed in moore's footsteps creating their own versions of utopia throughout the centuries But it was in the mid to late 19th century that utopian literature really took off. There were various reasons for this, but among them was the fact that in the 19th century, so many things were changing. Long held fundamental assumptions were being interrogated and undermined. Religion, science, politics, economics, power, everything could be questioned. The world, or at least the Western world, was in solution.
0: It was still shaping into the kind of more organized state and capitalist system of the 20th century capitalism was advancing in terms of industrial technology but how you organize capitalism was was in question on one hand there was the individual entrepreneur running running the factory and giving us the type of uh, dark satanic mills that that Blake writes about or that Engels writes about but on the other hand you had the cooperative movement like rela like that, that was developed by the likes of Robert Owen in the early 19th century. So you had cooperatives, and then you had people thinking about how to live differently. You, workers were beginning to become workers and were organizing. Uh, slaves were organizing and, and uh, you know, looking for the end of slavery in Britain and in the U.S. especially. Women, you know, people were in motion. Values were changing. the The church was losing its hold. Uh, new ideas about sexuality and food, vegetarianism, spirituality uh, was all being considered. And none of this had settled into the big nation states, the the war systems of the 20th century, the huge industrial capital machine of you know Fordism that we get. In, in the next century, um,
1: it was still to play for. And that really encouraged a lot of speculating. There was one book in particular, though, which sparked a boom in utopian writing and thinking. Looking Backward by the American writer Edward Bellamy was published in 1888 and it was a huge bestseller. The story is about a man named Julian West who's put into a hypnotic trance to help him sleep, but due to a series of unfortunate events, he remains in this state until he's discovered over a century later and woken up. It's now the year 2000 and Julian has awoken to a fully realised socialist utopia. Capitalism has disappeared, citizens are paid equally and have equal access to education, health and other services. There's a single government party and everyone works in an industrial army until the age of 45 before retiring with full benefits. Looking backwards, sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies in the years after its publication. Bellamy clubs sprang up across the US, there were new magazines promoting his utopian future, even a short-lived political party based on the ideas in the novel. It's a pretty rare example of a piece of fiction causing such an immediate and wide-ranging public response. And, of course, plenty of other writers and political thinkers wanted their say. Novels strongly in favour of and fervently opposing Bellamy's vision were churned out. More utopian novels were written in the decade after looking backward than in the entire preceding century put together. In the years that followed, H.G. Wells would begin a lifetime of utopian writing. Authors such as Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Florence Caroline Dixie would explore feminist utopias. William Morris, the famous English designer, author, and activist, published his response to Bellamy, the utopian novel News from Nowhere.
0: Morris said Bellamy's book was good in terms of looking at the social system, but it wasn't looking at everyday life, and it wasn't looking at design. Of course, Morris, the great designer of furniture and Wallpaper was also an ardent socialist and anarchist and feminist, and News From Nowhere is a much more complex and fully thought-out alternative world of a, of a future England. It was a rich time, and there was just a lot of good energy going on.
1: But as the 20th century wore on, the popularity of the utopia started to wane. Many people today, I think, would have trouble naming a utopian novel or TV show or film from the last, say, 50 years. Dystopias, on the other hand, are not in short supply. The dystopia is in one sense the opposite of the utopia. It's the oppressive, miserable, frequently violent or totalitarian world, which is clearly worse than the reader's own world. But ultimately, it exhorts change in the same way the utopia does. The utopia says, work towards this and we can create a better world. The dystopia says we need to create a better world or we're going to end up with this. Dystopias
0: start to get ridden at the time when we're moving toward nations capable of total war, uh, toward social systems that are becoming increasingly authoritarian, fascism and Stalinism being two, but also, uh, as the Frankfurt School points out, the the kind of commercial, commodified world of, of the U.S., economy and culture is as authoritarian in its own right. So the dystopian works like Zamyatin's *We* or Huxley or Orwell, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 is a great dystopia from the 1950s that that really takes on the world of of post-war suburban commodification. And he marries that with, with a vision of fascism. To me it's it's one of the most deep and and resonant dystopian novels. And then of course Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, you know, catches the the tensions of, of right wing uh, ascendancy and the destruction of women, the co optation, exploitation of women in the nineteen eighties, and we see how that's succeeding today on television as a response to the to the neoliberal uh, Trump world that we're in. So dystopias like utopias come out of history.
1: And dystopias are everywhere today, from bleak post-apocalyptic worlds like Cormac McCarthy's The Road to Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale or her more recent Mad Adam trilogy to recent TV shows like 3% or Black Mirror. And then there's the immense popularity of dystopian young adult YA fiction, The Hunger Games, The Maze Runner, Divergent, and so many others. So what happened? Why did the dystopia become the preeminent form of imagining an alternative future? Well, firstly, there are, as mentioned, political and historical reasons. But there's also the problem of narrative in utopias, of a good story. They can often be a bit, well, dull for the modern reader. Dystopias generally feature a character in a dystopian world who goes on a journey, who realizes that there's something wrong with the world and it has to change with all the resulting conflict this entails which is one of the reasons why YA dystopias are so popular. Teenagers, especially in today's rather dystopian political landscape, are very aware of injustice in the world, and are far less likely to be cynical about the possibility of change. In the traditional utopian narrative, however, there's often no conflict and very little characterization. I mean, try going to a publisher or a TV producer with a work which has no conflict and see where you end up and utopias are often really painfully detailed. Welcome, visitor. Let me explain the drainage system in my utopian world. And so forth. But to some extent, that's missing the point. Utopian literature, at least in the traditional sense, is is different.
0: Literary merit is different. We, we, uh, in our time, and maybe since the 18th century, privileged the literary aesthetic of the realist novel with a narrative that has a beginning, middle, and end, Dealing with usually one person going through his or her ups and downs, um, it wasn't always that way. There were different reading pleasures in in the time Moore was writing in the 16th and into the 17th century. One of the most popular forms uh, of writing was the sermon. Uh, it was it was a different kind of reader and a different kind of readerly pleasure. The other thing about Moore's time is that the the other uh, Literary form that was popular was the travelogue. This is when the Europeans were uh, conquering the rest of the world and writing back their reports. And people couldn't get enough of reading travelogues of these strange new lands. So what Moore does is take the travelogue and turn it into a fantastic thought experiment. And people really enjoyed at that time reading detail. And so the tour, the, the typical utopian visitor shows up Day shows up on the island of Utopia and says, oh, what is this place? Uh, and, and the local natives said, well, let me show you around. Here's the economy. Here's the politics. Here's the family. Here's the house and how it works. And people loved reading that tour. Uh, and that really shapes the, the literary form of the Utopia.
1: So when authors started trying to update the Utopia from the 1970s onwards, they realized that they'd need something that worked in terms of narrative for modern readers
0: science fiction writers especially, and especially in the U.S., people like Ursula Le Guin, Samuel R. Delaney, March Piercy, um, were having the same kind of utopian creative moment that, that people or a similar one to what people felt in the late 19th century. You know, the world was in motion after World War II, uh, and particularly in the U.S. and around the world in the 60s, the world was in in the depths of radical change and so they started to look for ways to imagine better worlds, they started to exercise a utopian imagination but they knew that the older utopian forms of strictly a tour of a good place wasn't really gonna work at the level of narrative and they started writing utopian novels in which conflict was inside the utopia. There was a conflict between the world as as it was, in the utopian alternative, and they paid a lot of attention to how to make that move from one to the other. Something that Morris did too, the whole question of political organizing. But in the new utopias, there was still conflict, because of course, we never, we never get to heaven. We're always, we're always going to have to have new problems to, to uh, encounter. And they dealt with making conflict part of the utopian process.
1: And in the same way, writers began exploring little enclaves of hope within wider dystopian worlds, something you find in the work of a writer like Octavia Butler, or in the YA dystopias of today.
0: So I think utopian writing today is a much more complex mixture. the The boundaries are blurred between the utopian and the dystopian. It's more like the utopian imagination is using anything that's available to the writer at a given
1: time. So... Things are not quite so clear-cut today, utopias within dystopias, utopias which may not be utopian at all, that recognition that the journey towards utopia is complex and can't be ignored. And just as there are authors writing utopian literature today, even if they are perhaps in the minority, so too are there people trying to live a more utopian life, or at least trying to explore alternative futures, alternative ways for a country to change and develop, for people and communities to live. It can be difficult to see a different path when our own is so all-encompassing. As the great critic of utopian science fiction Frederick Jameson once noted, for most people it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Which brings us back to the Ralahine Cooperative all those years ago, and to the many intentional communities and cooperatives in existence today, including, of course, the Clock Jordan eco-village. ...a small community which is trying to model an alternative ecological way of life. So, what's life in the eco-village like? Who lives there? How does it work? Well, that's what you can find out in part two, because this is a two-part episode, and, you know, you need at least two episodes to reach utopia. In part two, I'll also be looking at some contemporary utopian fiction, who, according to Professor Moylan, is the consummate writer of utopian fiction today. And how can fiction be an essential part of tackling climate change? Find out in two weeks, in episode
2: 19.
1: That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. I'm back. Sorry if you were waiting for new episodes two and four weeks ago, but I've been on some much-needed paternity leave. And now I have an amazing tiny six-week-old girl. So normal fortnightly episodes will resume from today, including the second part of this utopian adventure in two weeks' time. So please spread the word, tell your friends about the show, tweet about it, post it on Facebook, review it on iTunes. It all helps, and I would really, really appreciate it. So thank you. Special thanks this week to Tom Moylan and Patter Kirby. You'll hear more from both of them next week, but in the meantime, if you go to the words to that Effect website, which is WTTEpodcast.com, you can find links to their publications and lots of other information on them both. There are also links on the website to the Ralahine Centre, to some great photos of the Ralahine Cooperative today, and to Clock Jordan. Music this week was by the fantastic Irish group Sasso, including from their most recent album, Mysterium. They're great. Go check them out. Links are on the website. Finally, the show is on Facebook and Instagram. The website is WTTEpodcast.com and I'm on Twitter at CED Read. Come say hi. So that's it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in two weeks.